all just reminiscing, regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else. Now you listen to me, there'll be no one unless that someone is you. My name is Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, April 22nd, 2009. Now I've got a jam-packed show for you, as per usual. Uh, this one's going to start off with a quite lengthy conversation, but it's definitely an interesting one, and I hope you enjoy it. Tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m., the 9th Annual Signal and Noise Media Arts Festival is launching. It's sponsored by the Vivo Media Arts Centre. And earlier today, I headed on over to the Vivo, and I sat down for a wonderful conversation with one of the festival's directors and two of the artists participating in this year's events. I recorded the conversation, and here I've got it to share with you now. I hope you enjoy it. This is for the Signal and Noise Festival 2009. I guess we can just begin. Um, we're here at the Vivo Media Arts Center, and I'm here along with... Kika Thorne. Jem Noble. Angela Piccini. And um, at the end of this week will be the beginning of the 2009 Signal and Noise Festival. Now, Kika, you are one of the co-producers of the festival. I am indeed. I'm actually uh, Director of Programming. I share this title with Amy Kazmerchek. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've basically spent the last uh, three months uh, in <laughs> complete mm -hmm. seclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Getting everything Working ready. On this project, mm -hmm. yeah. So for, for people who have never heard of the Signal and Noise Festival, this is the ninth year it's been running. Can you give people a sense of what it's about? Sure. I mean, it's it's evolved over the years, but it began in 2001. Jen Y was the programmer at Video Inn, and she, which is the former name of Vivo Media Arts Center, and she went to Belgium, I believe, and uh, participated in a you know classic European arts festival there, mm -hmm. and realized oh we don't have one right. <laughs> in Vancouver, and so she just wanted to create a space for that. And simultaneous to that, uh, sound was becoming a, a broader, deeper interest for media artists. And so she wanted to insist on the, the role that sound would play mm. in, in the festival. And so there are a lot of pieces, and there are especially are, is kind of an, uh, an interesting focus on David Askable this year, but we mm -hmm. can get into that later. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of pieces that um, try to bring these elements into focus in new ways or try to find the ways in which sound and image are enacted within us, I guess, right. or amongst us. Okay. So that doesn't really describe the whole festival. No, it's not like, at all. Just, uh, just to, that that is the beginning. Um, and then it, you know, it was very low-tech when it started, mm -hmm. tiny, tiny little projects. Although I shouldn't say that, actually, because I wasn't here. Well, <laughs> it was probably a huge project. <laughs> I was going to say a, a decade ago, 
the state of technology is, was vastly different than it is now. And even every year, we're getting more and more um, computer and telephones and different ways to communicate with each other, as well as produce different types of sound and different media. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that, I mean, the the... the Video in was a center for video, mm-hmm. you know, both media art and uh, art and activism. Right. And so they were, you know, Jen was trying to push it, uh, bring in uh, new forms of media. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, but one, but her focus is really around a kind of conceptual art discourse. So often that's anti-object and mm. anti-spectacular, and that's kind of why I say it was small. Right. Because I think that the the works had a kind of humility to them mm-hmm. that, that 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 those practices tend to have. And over the years, as people like Emma Hendricks came on the scene and really tried to, you know, he they uh, he and Vel well actually it was Velveeta Crisp who was became the director in the. Um, mid-decade and she and Emma worked together to have diffusion which means eight channel Mm -hmm. sound system so it's really gorgeous lush sound and Mm -hmm. it kind of creates a more spectacular experience right right? so that's what I mean is that we went from you know like the sort of two channel (laughs) (laughs) situation to this like you know uh, pretty gorgeous. A cacophony of yeah, sound, yeah, one might say. say. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to this year's festival, there's mm-hmm. over 50 artists involved, mm-hmm. and we have two of them here. Yes. Let's start by saying how each of you are involved in this year's festival. Angela, can we start with you? Sure. Um, I'm here, I guess, as sort of an in-between point between artists and academics. So I'm here at the moment as a visiting scholar out at UBC and Mm -hmm. I have a particular interest in place and space and documentary film and video. And I've been asked to moderate the artist talk on Saturday on the land. So I'll be talking with four of the artists who are involved in the festival to really discuss and open out questions around how they work with notions of land, belonging, identity through their work. And that will cover everything from their sort of their conceptual methods, so mm-hmm. the kinds of ideas that they're working with and how they develop those ideas mm-hmm. and enact those through their work to also their aesthetic strategies, so the actual the actual practices of making work because the work across the festival spans everything from you know picking mm-hmm. up on what Kika was saying the sort of the gorgeous lushness of the spectacular so you have some works which create these amazing landscapes and are really cinematic in, spo- in scope to works which might take uh, short segments of archival footage and treat those in a, in a particular way both of those works you know visually mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a huge distinction between those and those are different very different aesthetic strategies but each will deal with this question of who gets to own land? What what does our relationship with the land entail? Mm-hmm. How do our um, artistic practices transform the lived event of sort of inhabiting land into something else? And all of those engage with with questions, I guess, with with the more sort of conceptual questions of what it means to transform the land. Right. And so the artists who you will be speaking or moderating, will they...? Yeah, they're, they're scheduled all through the festival. So it's uh, Jeffrey Pugin, Alison Pebworth, Vanessa Rennick, and Sobial Zawaidi. And um, so their works will be scheduled. I can't remember at the moment when, the, well, when they are on the schedule. <laughs> when are they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. well. yes um, so uh, Jeffrey Pugin and uh, Vanessa Rennick and Daniel Menche are showing on... They're the, it's the very first show called mm-hmm. Animal Mirror, 
um, which I think we can talk about that show later, but just to give an idea of what it is. So it's 6.30 on Thursday night, mm -hmm. it's the opening show. Right. And uh, then it's Alison Pebworth. Yes, Alison Pebworth is a, well, she's going to be showing, um, she has a ongoing performative um, installation mm -hmm. uh, called Beautiful Possibilities, okay. uh, field office actually, and she, anyway, so she'll be here throughout the festival, mm -hmm. and people can come at any point, and, and actually her exhibit is free, so just so people know that right. if they can't afford to see the screenings or see mm -hmm. the, the um, sound performances that you can still come and mm -hmm. be part of the festival. Mm -hmm. And there are a number yeah, of events that people yeah. can be involved in, which we will get to. Yeah. Um, and then uh, um, Zobi, uh, Zobi Alzabadi is in the the pit. Uh, oh my God, now I'm forgetting the title. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> the Pit of Babel, a speculative mm. archive. And that's on at 6.30 on Friday. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, your involvement with the the festival and bringing these artists together, you're also pursuing um, some studies or your own work here in Vancouver around the Olympics, which is a huge media event right now. And um, and uh, you are actually you have a lot of scholarship in archaeology as well as the fine arts. How how do you foresee yourself getting involved in in the kind of art or the kind of representation that we'll be seeing at the Sound and Noise Festival, however, in the future? I mean, for me, I mean, the, the obvious, obvious sort of touch point would be in the Pit of Babel and the sort of the archive and the use and the transformation of material culture mm -hmm. into events. So I'm, I'm particularly interested, you know, my background in, in archaeology and contemporary archaeology and, and media is about that tracking back and forth between lived event and material artifact in the form of, of the document. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in that. But at the same time, I see lots of connections with the animal magic strand in the festival as well, which focuses a lot on the use of artifacts to transform lived events. Mm -hmm. So it's again, it's about that, that relationship. It's not simply that events are sort of concretized or, or made into sort of stable static objects. Objects themselves have a magic and have their own life worlds mm -hmm. and their own kind of dynamic duration which may be a different sense of time to the time mm -hmm. that we're aware of but they too act on us to create situations. So I guess that's, you know, from my perspective I'm just really interested in and very grateful to be invited to uh -huh. participate in the festival because just the work is, is so amazing. So I've had mm -hmm. the chance this week to look at a lot of the work together and that's been a fantastic experience and one that I would really recommend to any, to any listeners to really come and immerse yourself in the work mm -hmm. because then you start to pick out all these really fascinating traces and links mm -hmm. through the materials that you wouldn't necessarily see if you're only picking and choosing one thing. Right. And it's clear that the curators have thought very, very carefully and chosen works that really sort of, I don't know, create a really kind of magic space between all of these different mm. things. Well, leading from that, the person who has been silent throughout this conversation thus far is Jem, who is also an artist who will be presenting as part of the Signal and Noise Festival. Jem. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Um, can you can you give us a sense of how your work will be participating in the in the festival? Um, can you sort of describe what people will be encountering? Sure. Um, my piece is called Self Storage, mm -hmm. and it takes place on Friday, 
Um, it starts with meeting in the lobby in, um, in here in Vivo Arts. Um, and it's free. Um, it literally involves uh, an act of self-storage. So I'm a self-storage facilitator mm-hmm. for the purposes of this project. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a self-storage space nearby. Um, I will be conducting an exercise in um, partial sensory deprivation mm. for a short period of time for um, however many people arrive. It will be done in small groups. Okay. Um, so there are resonances with other concerns of the festival in terms of um, sensory deprivation in one respect has uh, uh, links to the spiritual and transcendence, which Mm -hmm. is um, actually not one of my interests. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) It also equally has um, implications of um, torture and abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, which also are not my interests. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm merely (laughs) merely providing a self-storage facility. Um, (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) There'll be no no, uh, orange boiler suits and black hoods. Um, There will, will, however, be, and I'll have to describe this for the benefit Mm -hmm. of the the listeners, there will be... um, Sensory inhibition um, tools. Ah. Uh, this is the Simply Red. Uh, it's a sleep mask mm-hmm. um, designed to, obviously, to cut down uh, light and inhibit mm-hmm. uh, visual perception. And these are squidgy little earplugs. Yes. Uh, obviously, designed to cut down audition. Um, there are anywhere between nine and twenty-one human senses. So, really, what this experience will be about is is limiting some of those um and one of my key interests is in uh attention is in Mm -hmm. human attention um on for various reasons um and i'm interested in what this opportunity will provide um the spectator Mm -hmm. Um, i think that's an interesting word to use with regard to this because most of the Objects um, of spectatorship are being are being removed. Right. Um, in many respects, it's kind of negating lots of what other art experiences are, are about. Mm-hmm. But using that t- as a as a way of um, unpacking what human attention uh, is about, how mm. it works. Um, I think that's very interesting in terms of the 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 name of the festival, Sound and Noise. We're so overwhelmed nowadays with senses and and images and messages that are being sent at us in every space that we are around, whether it's the fan of a computer to actual overt advertising. And I think, I I wonder whether or not you're concerned about fear, because I think a a lot of people (laughs) will, may, there's a trust issue obviously involved in your work as well. Indeed, indeed. I think, you know, um, there won't be any nasty surprises. Um, (laughs) Uh, any sudden loud bangs. Do they have to sign a waiver or anything? Uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) Uh, uh, There will be, um, yes, uh, a large amount of trust um, involved in the experience, but um, it's very much about, from my point of view, about um, facilitating an experience of neutrality and not trying to um, govern the direction of um, participants' experience in any any way. Mm -hmm. Um, there There are lots of um, points of interest um, from my my w- wider practice that inform my reasons for um, for this and my interest in the self storage facility. I mean, on the day, I think it's probably okay to talk about this um, this now. But on the day, I don't really want to um, 
I guess, infect people's imaginations with too much of this kind of superfluous um, uh, information with regard to my own interests, because I think in a situation of um, of partial sem- sensory deprivation, mm-hmm. um, it would be very easy for people's uh, experiences to be governed by anything I might say in advance. Right. So, but given this is on the radio um, <laughs> and it will give people time to time to forget, I'm quite happy to talk about those right. wider interests. Um, okay. One of which is domesticity. Mm-hmm. I think the cell storage phenomenon is really interesting. Um, this day and age, um, it's in- an increasingly popular appendage to lifestyle mm-hmm. and for many people a necessary um, accessory to lifestyle mm-hmm. um, accumulation is clearly a large part of the way that we live um, and our relationships with objects is complex we don't necessarily want to get rid of things because objects have power or at least mm-hmm. we invest them with power mm-hmm. um, or value di- indeed yeah or value of difference monetary and otherwise yeah um, and it's not just as simple as getting rid of, rid of things um, mm-hmm. when your domestic space gets too full. Right. And so, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if you're getting these adverts here yet, but, I mean, having moved over here temporarily from the UK, mm-hmm. there's now an advertising phenomenon I've noticed, which is advertising self-storage. Um, it's for a particular company over there called Big Yellow, and it's a beautiful animation in which clutter is, is kind of waves of clutter. It's stop-frame animation, and waves mm. of clutter are taking over a space. And then it's, you know, Big Yellow Storage is the solution to all your you know, ah. lifestyle problems. <laughs> and I think it's what's really interesting about that is how um, negating the objects which we desire, which we acquire and accumulate, you know, the prospect and ability to then negate them by putting them in dark spaces away from us mm-hmm. is now the latest accessory that we need in order to to live <laughs> our lives. I mean, how weird is that? Um, and so, you know, part of my work um, is concerned with these dynamics of um, a power and control between people and objects in the domestic space. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of work in... Um, anthropology and cultural theory mm-hmm. about the role of the domestic space um, in individuation, in the development of our identities, in how we negotiate meaning and value in wider society through the way that we order objects and processes in our domestic environment. Um, and yet, because we're so familiar with it, we rarely see it. Um, mm. There's a, a philosopher that some or many listeners may have heard of called Martin Heidegger who talks about... Um, human attention uh, in terms of uh, you know, our, our relationship to the world in terms of um, uh, objects being either present at hand uh, or ready to hand and mm-hmm. this really relates to kind of the disappearance that comes with familiarity with things with habituation mm-hmm. and he talks about his example is a hammer how when we're using a hammer if everything is going okay the hammer acquires a transparency. Suddenly we don't think about it. Um, mm. It just becomes an extension of our intentions. Right. Um, and yet if there's a problem with it, like if we hit our thumb or if the nail won't go in, suddenly we become aware of what we're looking at. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of flexibility and permeability between ourselves and the world where um, things aren't necessarily that distinct as being uh, internal and external. Mm-hmm. That's a very kind of um, flexible territory in right. which things can disappear sorry I'll, we'll get to my we'll get yeah. to my point uh, <laughs> so what interests me about the domestic environment is that these really important things with which we surround ourselves that we engage with um important in terms of helping define and contest identity and meaning 
actually take on this kind of quiet existence because of familiarity and there's mm -hmm. a kind of paradox there that I think is really interesting and this work in self-storage um, is an extension of that exploration of domesticity and relationships of power with objects but right. it happens to be through an exercise in really negating that using a space that's about negating mm -hmm. objects um, from the domestic but really taking that uh, as an opportunity to, to negate um, ourselves and our own sensory experience mm -hmm. possibly as a space for contemplation but again mm -hmm. that's perhaps far too leading because I don't want right. to really kind of govern or influence how people uh, experience, <laughs> experience it and they will bring and each person regardless of of whatever you happen to do in your piece will bring their own sensibility to to their entrance of the space and perhaps they have connections with the things that you negated before like religious uh, associations or they might draw threads that way to their own experience yeah but um, uh you know I'm kind of I, I really like that idea that the way that Deleuze and Guattari talk about I mean I think they open up the anti-Oedipus with uh, Two, two of us are many, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we, so each, each of us is many, and, and they're already, so just this idea that uh, subjectivity is a group portrait, mm -hmm. you know, so, so what does it actually mean for us collectively to check ourselves in to <laughs> self-storage, mm -hmm. <laughs> and how usually the self-storage is, is for one, or is for this very tight unit, and, mm -hmm. but here's, it, it's a room for such dispersed identities, mm -hmm. like, it's pretty random who's going to be in this yeah. dark space together. That, yeah, <laughs> that that certainly speaks to um, some of the other concerns that I have in in using this as a, both a, both a mode of practice, but also you know looking at it as um, as an art form, as the idea of the experience itself being the work of art. Mm -hmm. There are several strands in um, over the development of art practice and criticism over the last century. Um, for which I think this has quite interesting implications. And the, the, the first one is minimalism um, mm -hmm. and the idea of uh, the, the <laughs> subjective. That is funny to think yeah. about. <laughs> I mean, it's really kind of <laughs> how really more minimal can you get? <laughs> yeah. um, but <laughs> minimalism being really kind of the advent of art as, um, um, as a means to facilitate exploration of the subjective space between... Uh, between um, spectator and object. Mm -hmm. So looking at the phenomenology of spectatorship really is what minimalism opened up and was partly criticised for. Right. Um, so within that relationship, you know, reducing the content of artwork down to um, essential or, you know, for formal aspects, simplified formal aspects, mm -hmm. it then opens up the a kind of reflective process where what you see is yourself seeing. Right. You know, when all you're looking at is just a cube or, you know, mm -hmm. a white painting. It's funny, because mm -hmm. did you see the Hefe, is it Hefe Hein? Yeah. Did you describe yeah. it? So, so it, it, in some ways I feel that there's a direct correspondence. Hefe Hein had a show at the CAG um, just recently, the mm -hmm. Contemporary Art Gallery um, in Vancouver. And so, and it, what, what all it was was this white text uh, white on white. Mm -hmm. So it's white vinyl text that surrounds the edge of the gallery that describes all the things that do not exist in all, all the things one could actually you know what one what, could but one could do but generally don't do, do. within uh, established or formal arts environments. So mm -hmm. stuff like Isn't it like hug hug the person next to you or but, something 
right. they sort of commands like that. Right, yeah. and then and then inside that space, there's. I mean, what was it? There's a. And it's, it is sort of crazy to go into this intense description, uh -huh. as we said. But it. Uh, but uh, he. I mean, they use this. Uh, whatever. Sh what sounds like shoplifting. Uh, you know the. What is that? Video sensors, motion sensors. I think. But the point being that that there was an invisible cube mm. uh, created in that space, and it was through the performance that one experienced. The, the ends of yeah the boundaries of the cube mm. that's the point hmm. so because you know as soon as you describe that's what I was like well that's so strange to describe this piece as minimalist because even though there is a kind of there's there are all these steps to reduction there's so much performativity mm -hmm. it's like such yeah. a spectacular minimalism in a way <laughs> mm -hmm. that yeah, I'm like that I'm kind of but it's uh -huh. but it's it's spectacular without an object of spectacle. It's where the pr the act of attention itself becomes the spectacle, um, but also because of the duration. You know, one of that's actually not. You know, I'm not interested in minimalism in that respect. I think there's also, you know, an equally interesting line to approach this from through relational arts practice mm. and relational aesthetics and the idea of the intersubjective space, an idea that group participation opens up or acknowledges the intersubjectivity. Um, of spectatorship, whereby you know we are affected by and affect those around us mm -hmm. in the act of um, consuming, interpreting, producing mm -hmm. artwork. And again, what interests me about this context is that yes, it's a group activity, and in which whoever turns up, I think, will be definitely aware of who's around them. And yet, it's at the same time hyper individualized and isolated because we're you know the, the means through which we normally engage with people are being denied right. you know our, our visual faculties our auditory faculties mm -hmm. are being denied so i think it's kind of driving interesting wedges into different approaches towards arts practice and spectatorship from different angles in that in that respect mm -hmm. um, but i think it also ties in really well with the themes throughout the festival so i mean we were discussing this earlier just the notion the way in which it calls up the notion of archive, right? Mm -hmm. I was storing. That's what I was going to say. Is that <laughs> what, are you, what are you storing when you're storing yourself? Mm -hmm. And I think also because it's performative, it highlights the fact that the archive is always going to be impossible, right? Mm -hmm. It's you know to bring up another another European philosopher. You know, it's what Derrida says about archive being the death drive, mm -hmm. and about it's our desire to see that moment when the foot leaves the imprint of itself in the sand. But of course. That moment is, you can never find that moment. Exactly. Um, and at, so actually putting people into a box makes you aware actually mm -hmm. of the event of archive. Mm -hmm. It's impossibility. Also, you're carrying all sorts of different ideas with you. But though those ideas are multiple, you are multiple. You're mm -hmm. aware of that multiplicity, as Kika was saying. Mm -hmm. But then it also ties in really nicely, I think, with this sort of becoming animal at Strand in the festival mm -hmm. as well. So there's this notion around animals, our relationships with animals, domesticity and wildness, mm -hmm. how, you know, is what we do to tigers, for example, so different to what we do to domestic cats? Mm -hmm. What is this notion of cagedness? What is our fascination with our sort of messy corporeal animalness mm -hmm. as opposed to any other aspect of what it means to be human. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting the way in which it ties in to the festival. And it's also well, sort of anti-cinema. It's gorgeously anti-cinema. <laughs> <laughs> There's also, it, it, interesting, after the Animal Mirror show, uh, we're showing um, Ryan Tricartan's IB Area, which is, I think he plays about 10 of the characters in this uh, extravaganza and the, it's 
so histrionic. <laughs> it's intense, <laughs> and, and it's ex an extended feature. But it's quite phenomenal in that he's uh, he's he's revealing how, like I'd say, a nine-person community or mm. scene becomes. 27 or 87 identities right. that each each time you make a Facebook uh, page or even a Photoshop file mm -hmm. of yourself, there's this other identity or a video, every mm -hmm. single aspect of oneself that spreads out into the world desiring attention uh, is it's kind of a colonizing practice really mm. and and he anyways it's really fabulous and there and so what he does is he all of these identities that are created are in contest with one another for attention mm. <laughs> <So> <laughs> in the film in the film yeah, yeah. and and of course it, it every single character has its space which has this great correspondence to the storage space there's just a room like the frame mm. becomes the room so even if it's a youtube frame or if it's a uh a, it could be any number of there's are there any number of frames whether it's an an average second life avatar or, right. or, a, or a real person in a room or you know so mm. there because it's all created through video or sent out through the signal mm. it's video and that's how the audience is going to experience it uh, everything flattens right and so the in a sense, everything is the same, mm -hmm. right? So that even though the all of the phenomena that are, you know, whether it's a cell phone image or, you know, the, the actual physical spaces that are being represented, they all get reflattened again. Right. Even though they were flattened, and then they get reflattened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I I am drawn to to point out that um, there's a need it seems with with humanity, I guess, um, to either put their, invest their identity into objects, let's say, or animals, or in these multiple um, renditions of themselves, whether it be by distributing photos or creating web spaces, etc. And physically, we're multiplying in a way that we've never multiplied before, humankind. Um, but now we are also multiplying in these other spaces. And I'm wondering... Um, just from an archaeological perspective, I guess, or from a, an archive perspective, um, what implications did these have? Like, we are almost losing control of our ourselves, quote-unquote, as, as being a solitary human being. Is that even a concept that you guys think exists anymore? Did, did it ever exist? <laughs> I guess that's the interesting thing with Jem's piece, is, is how people experiencing it will fall into the illusion of the coherent subject because mm. if you're in a room with your thing and you're sort of wittering on and probably in your sort of anxious mode on the inside of your head because that's mm -hmm. how we all tend to exist mm -hmm. does does that kind of internal anxiety come to stand in for coherent subjectivity but of course that's just another expression mm -hmm. a manifestation of multiplicity but it's interesting in terms of the mediatized or media reproductions of self because mm -hmm. as you were saying Kika it's in a way it's all the same right mm -hmm. because everything is is digital so it's infinitely reproducible you don't lose anything through that reproduction it's all ones and zeros so the materiality of the code is pretty much it's the same right and what I've been kind of interested in I guess in the sort of the research that I've been doing because I've been focusing a lot on Facebook and Twitter updates because obviously any media um, media organizations are involved in that is actually also then not simply this drive to have this sort of crazy performative 
self because on the one hand different media formations allow you to construct all sorts of selves that you might not feel on mm. the inside i'm using all of those terms mm -hmm. in, in contested ways but but at the same time all of those tools and technologies keep driving us towards this ever-increasing sort of professionalism and mm -hmm. weirdly through their fragmentation and through their multiplication seem to be driving us towards some sense of coherence. So, I mean, you know, the thing this week about the NDP candidate and his right. photographs on Facebook, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that there are different cells, you know, mm -hmm. there, are, there are different subjectivities that can be presented, but we need, we seem to be needing ever increasingly some sense mm -hmm. of stability. So mm -hmm. I think actually rather than stability becoming outmoded and disappearing, it's becoming more important mm -hmm. to a sense of community. And I think that perhaps that's a, that ties in with artists' particular concerns with land and belonging, the sort of the, the current interest in participatory or interactive work, because it's about trying to get at some sense of you and me or us in this mm -hmm. room face to face in some kind of embodied sense of interaction. But at the same time, we know that that's that that's impossible because we are fragmented and, mm -hmm. you know, on an atomic level, we're interpolated with the rest of the world. That um, also indicates the importance of um, of filters, the role of filtering. I mean, obviously, uh, in the times that we live where we have access to so much more, I mean, assuming that we have access to computers for a start, mm -hmm. we have access to so many more sources of data, um, the role of filtering is all important, mm -hmm. you know. Um, how do you choose you know where to look for your sources mm -hmm. it's why you know some people might subscribe to the Vancouver Sun website to get their news out online or mm -hmm. it's why you know pre data news um, right. people would have bought a particular newspaper mm -hmm. um, you know we need to manage um, the ever-increasing fragmentation of information whether mm -hmm. it's digital or, or otherwise right. um, and that yeah, that comes down to an issue of, um, of framing or being able to frame and contextualise, um, as I say, an, an ever-growing and ever-more complex field of perceptual data and, and content. Mm -hmm. um, but also being aware at the same time that there are things that do not fall in, into any of the frames that are presented to us and that I that there is still quite a void of people who aren't represented on the internet and experiences that are n nowhere in this technological landscape yeah. that mm -hmm. even if we're choosing supposedly better news institutions, better mm -hmm. ways of getting information, there is still a large black area that is not touched within these frames. Definitely. But I think, in one respect, if you think about how we lived before um, the proliferation of technologies for delivering news, mm -hmm. for delivering different forms of information, part of me thinks that um, it's a continuum and that, you know, more simple lifestyles, um, you know, if you want to use the example of back-to-the-land lifestyles or mm -hmm. lifestyles that are kind of more tied to the land, I'm tempted to, th to think that actually people within that kind of sphere of existence actually express the same concerns and the same methods and ways of dealing with things that we do in an envir in a data-rich environment. Yeah. Um, it's just that we have far much more of it to deal with. Yeah. Um, and I think that what interests me about that is the role of attention, again, going, going back to the role of attention in our experience, how attention 
really has kind of grown into something completely fragmented um, and it's a necessary tool for dealing with um, the world that we live in that has so many different complicated elements right um, but also it's kind of been it's produced by that mm-hmm. there's a writer called Jonathan Crary who, who wrote a book about attention called Suspensions of Perception um, which looks at attention really as having come about through really having kind of started to appear in people's way of thinking about um, about humanity really in the mid 19th century and with industrialization with modernization mm-hmm. um, with ever new forms of technology for making processes more efficient uh, for, for distributing objects for distributing information mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting that as our environment becomes ever more complex um, so much more is is demanded of us in terms of being able to focus on things and make sense of you know of filter things and make sense mm-hmm. of things and yet at the same time our ability to do that um, is ever more distracted or challenged mm-hmm. by the fact of that pl- proliferation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying now to think about how <laughs> that relates to what you just well, said. I, I, I just I mean I'm, I I keep kind of just since I read it, I keep coming back mm. to this essay um, by Boris Groys um, called Religion in the Age of Digital Reproduction. Mm-hmm. He's basically suggesting that because we no longer have this centralized uh, institutional forms of media, mm-hmm. that media has become so private, it's, mm. it's everywhere, and it bears an uncanny resemblance to the way in which religious images mm-hmm. proliferate. You don't actually know where their source is. They're just constantly constructed mm. and, and sent out mm-hmm. by people for the people. And so, so that's why he suggests the, that there is this rise of fundamentalism, because it takes advantage of the privacy, the anti-institutional nature of this um, viral culture. And, and and so I'm reading this going, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I turn the page and he somehow credits fundamentalism for having the potential to rupture. In fact, I realize now that I don't actually completely understand what he's mm-hmm. saying that but I do hope that people will we the, this will be one of the essays that we are photocopying and handing mm-hmm. out to people so that they have stuff to read if they're hanging out mm-hmm. during the festival and but I do hope that people will take up this essay cuz uh, this this shift from the, sort of the the demonizing of fundamentalism mm-hmm. to understanding as such a kind of a rupturous uh, phenomena that it can actually transform democracy through through mm-hmm. its extremism <laughs> it's, just, it's just such a a mind flip. <laughs> so, so anyway, the, it, the, the fact that he, he's actually dealing with this relationship between the um, proliferation and multiplication of images that are as a private act and as a collective private act, mm. uh, I think that these, that's a sort of central concern at this festival. And, and the reason why we see all of these pieces that tend to allude to, uh, toward or uh, move toward the occult or the sacred or um, uh, the profound, maybe. Mm-hmm. But so. it's also interesting because of the way in which it ties in with somebody like uh, Friedrich Kittler and his gramophone film typewriter book mm. about how technology transforms 
modes of human and non-human interaction. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that essay about fundamentalism in technology is really interesting because of the way in which those private technologies, whether it's like the cell phone as rosary bead, I was suddenly <laughs> thinking, ooh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's so good. How that, how, how, that, how that is what propels the new social formations, and of course the new social formations provide the content for those technologies. Mm. And it's interesting thinking exactly about this notion of, of the occult and it's something that it is really that engagement with the magic of things I mean you were talking about the power that people invest in things but from an archaeology point of view I would say well the power is in things and even on a you know on a sort of physics level we know that power resides in things things have potential mm -hmm. they have movement they have duration the glass is always in flow mm -hmm. blah 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 and, and those propel us to behave in particular ways and it's really interesting how in the works across this festival everything from like 14.3 seconds of film archive from Iraq you know which is completely I, you know, unintelligible as it stands on its own, and yet has this incredible power to propel the artist to actually make this incredible series of sort of eight different narratives. Can you just explain that? Please? Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, the um, during the first wave of shock and awe, I believe, the Americans bombed the Iraqi film archive and the entire history. Basically, <laughs> it was destroyed, save for 14.3 seconds of film that they found. Um, and the work itself plays in between fact and fiction, but at the end it says that this bit is true, that they had, that an American GI was put together with an Iraqi translator, neither of whom had any experience in film practice or film theory or, or anything. They were just put together to use the seconds of film plus the paper records mm -hmm. to reconstruct this archive. Mm. Which of course is is a daft, yeah. a daft <laughs> project. So that wasn't fourteen point three seconds found in one chunk. It was no, lots of tiny. Yeah, fragments. lots eight different fragments. You know, including like the split second of the donkey's nose, and so, and, and the art, and the artist has done this done this just incredibly moving piece where he's working from the paper archives, which involve you know the descriptions of films, plot lines, mm. the cast, date, director, etc and then using these little tiny fragments to create or recreate the narratives of different films and it's mm. and i mean it's both funny and incredibly profound and moving mm. so. and when when will this be uh the piece was going to be on it's in the pit of babel show um speculative archive so it's at 6:30 on friday right after gems uh, project so we can check so, yeah you can check them both out, both out. Yeah, yeah. just wanted to pick up on um the role of technology in producing archive um, in different ways. Obviously that has a very specific kind of um, application in trying to reconstruct archive or a sense of archive um, with obviously very specific materials working with film. To kind of step back from that and look at the idea of technology itself, uh, what happens with how we engage with the tools that are produced with specific functions. Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking about this Takeshi, Takeshi Murata, who's yeah. also provided a piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I saw this um, this recently and was looking at some stuff on online. And what caught my attention, well, two reasons what caught my attention. One was it's um, he uses this, this video effect called, which has become known as data moshing or video moshing or data mm -hmm. moshing. And 
some of the listeners might know this because the latest Kanye West video, mm. um, <laughs> Heartbreak something or something Heartbreak, um, <laughs> uses this effect and it's creating quite a big a big storm as something new when in fact, um, well, for a start, I think there was a presets, a video for the presets in 2007 which used it, but also mm. Takeshi Murata, the piece he, he has, he made it in 2005 mm. um, and it uses um, a glitch in the technology which comes from um, the phenomenon of compression of compressing video data mm. and the transfer of compressed files and when there's a corruption in that file the way that compression works um, is to look at frame by frame aspects of video that don't change mm. um, and to, to keep those as fixed points so anything that doesn't change from one frame to the next will be kept as a fixed point mm. and it's only the bits that change that will move no. and when the file becomes corrupted the instructions by which aspects are retrieved and moved in, in this visual field become completely confused. So you get this crazy effect of mm. things suddenly kind of amorphously morphing into other aspects of the, of the video. It's, it's very difficult mm. to describe, but it's really distinctive. And if, if you check out either the Kanye West video online right. um, or if you come oh. to the festival to check out this, this piece... It's um, like the sort of 80s sort of experiments with liquids between glass. It's kind of got the sort of mercury flow mm. aspect or like, you know, if, if an LCD screen goes wrong kind of right. thing. But that, there's something interesting in there, I think, about... Obviously, to start with, that there is a practice of, you know, working with the mistake or with the glitch, you know, harnessing a mistake and working with mm -hmm. that for its aesthetic value. Mm -hmm. But I think, as we were talking about earlier, there's also an interesting implication with the notion of archive because it's about kind of attempting to stabilise data or to fix aspects of the visual field within this, within this particular means of technology that then becoming corrupted or unstable, the impossibility of actually being able to um, to fix um, aspects of of the archive. It's, it's also a proof of the way in which avant-garde practitioners transform the mainstream. I mean, this this movement from the digital to the organic, which mm. I think is what happens with Murata's work, is, or at least, I mean, he's a very playful and conceptual artist, so mm. he, he moves, like, across the, you know, he uses all possible glitches yes. <laughs> to make create new meaning, and um, but I guess that's what I really like about having a festival experience, mm -hmm. is that it's, it's very much what is being shown, but it's mm. also about the opportunity to get together with mm -hmm. all these people, and, and if you if you have the time it, to be able to see them for a number of days, you know, mm -hmm. and to give strangers who are really interested in having this intense engagement with you, uh, you that you give them that time, right? You right. give each other, we give each other that time to to build new discourses and potential collaborations. And sometimes, you know, people are visiting from afar, and so you're building alliances from other parts. And on that note, I'm going to encourage everyone to head out to the Signal and Noise Festival. And I'm going to end this discussion. Thank you so much for uh, participating. Thanks, Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. The Signal and Noise Festival begins tomorrow, April 23rd at 6.30 p.m. with Animal Mirror, the Vivo Arts 
The Vida, Vivo Media Arts Centre is located at 1965 Main Street. And the full five-day festival schedule is available online at www.signalandnoise.ca. You should definitely check it out, and I will be attending as many events as I can. So I just need to send a big thanks out to Kika, Angela, and Jem for their time today and their wonderful discussion. Signal and Noise 2009, check it out. Out. And now for something completely different. Hi, uh, I'm Tony Dawson. I teach in the English department here. I'm actually retired at this point, but I've taught Shakespeare many times, and uh, I guess that's my small claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've run, written uh, some books at yeah, least. Yeah, I've written several <laughs> books on Shakespeare and related subjects, and also I've edited a couple of Shakespeare's plays. Most recently, um, Time in of Athens, one of his more obscure plays, but it was produced recently at Barn on the Beach. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm also working on another edition of Macbeth on the Internet. This is going to be on the Internet. Cool. So that's a whole new kind of thing. Right. Okay, well, the reason why I, I contacted you and I was hoping to talk to you Today was because this Thursday, April 23rd, 2009, may very well be William Shakespeare's 445th birthday. But we're not exactly sure that that's his 445th birthday. Well, we're pretty sure that it's uh, his 445th birthday is around this time. Mm -hmm. Whether it's precisely on the 23rd is a matter of some conjecture. The reason for that is that there's no actual record of Shakespeare's birth. Mm -hmm. They didn't have birth certificates and things like that in those days. What they did have was baptismal records, church records, and so it has been found that he was baptized on the 26th of April in 1564. Uh, so the question really is, uh, what day on which he was born? What what day was he born on? It was probably uh, a couple of days before. They didn't wait very long in those days because of the issue of child mortality, so they wanted to get babies baptized quickly, get them into heaven, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, he could have been born on the 23rd, he could have been born on the 22nd, he could have been born on the 24th or even the 25th. The, uh, the reason the 23rd was chosen, a couple of good reasons actually, one of them is the fact that it was the day in which Shakespeare uh, died in 1616. Uh, he died on the 23rd of April, so it makes a nice kind of mm -hmm. uh, round uh, circle. The other reason is the 23rd of April is the traditionally uh, the uh, birthday or the or the, the saint's day of St. George, the patron saint of England. And so Shakespeare's sort of the patron, patron poet of England, so you know, it kind of fits nicely together. Right. Um, but despite us not knowing exactly which, which day he was born, his many, so many of his words live on today. So how can we, how do we account for the fact that we know so much of his work and about his later life, but very little about the beginning. Oh, well, um, no one knew he was going to be famous when he was little, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they didn't keep very many records. And, I mean, typically records in those days were relatively sparse, and also those records that were made are, have often disappeared. So the kinds of ways in which Shakespeare shows up, aside from his theat the theatrical records and the publication of plays and things of that sort, really uh, tend to be later on in his life when he got involved with things like lawsuits and mm. those there were disputes and things and so then legal documents got got squirreled away someplace and and 
people, scholars in later years, looking for various references to Shakespeare here and there have unearthed these things. So there, you know, the the our awareness of his early life is relative. We just don't know very much. We know who his parents were. We know who his brothers and sisters were. We also know that he had a liaison with a woman called Anne Hathaway, became his wife, uh, relatively young, uh, and that they had a child shortly after. Um, their marriage, mm -hmm. <laughs> less than nine months after their marriage. <laughs> uh, we also know that sometimes sh shortly after that, he went off to London and presumably left uh, Anne and the babies at home right. uh, and, um, and pursued his career in London. And no doubt went back and forth. And then he retired back to Stratford, where he was from mm -hmm. uh, and where she lived. Um, in around 1611, 1612, and died in Stratford in 1616. So he did have a few years of retirement, relatively right. early retirement, since he was just a little bit over 50, right? Right. Yeah. And But his plays as well were not written down, or they weren't uh, collected until long after his death. 1623, so not that much longer. And okay. Many of the people with whom he had worked were still alive. And in fact, two of the, the two people who were primarily responsible for bringing those, all those plays together in what's called the First Folio, a big volume published in 1623. Um, those two men were part of his acting company, so they knew him fairly well, and they had access to the various manuscripts and things like that from which they printed those plays. I should also say, though, that about half the plays that, that are in the folio had also been published earlier on, hmm. uh, many of them with his name on the title page, although not all of them with his name on the title. Some of the very early pl play of his plays that were published did not have his name on the title page, but eventually, after he became a little bit better known, it became something of an advertisement to put him on the title page. Right. So, what, and they were published in individual editions, like, okay. you know, just the one play, mm -hmm. <clears throat> like Merchant of Venice or Henry V, or that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and so they, they were published as that particular play, usually with a statement that they had been acted by the company with which Shakespeare was uh, allied. Uh, and as I said, by about 1596 or seven. The, the, uh, his name began to appear on the title pages of those plays. Mm -hmm. So if we hadn't ever had the big volume, we would have about half of his plays even so. Right. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so many of the students here at UBC and all over the English-speaking world have studied Shakespeare in school. They've studied sure. his plays. And we learn that he's one of the greatest writers in English history, in the history of the English langu language. But it's hard for a lot of people to appreciate why that is the fact. Mm -hmm. So the question that I emailed you, and which I'm getting to now, was for those of us who sort of take for granted that we speak the English that we do and the way that we do, how might our lives here in Vancouver be different? had Shakespeare never been born? Wow. Well, it's a difficult question, of course, you know, because it's a lot of speculation. And first, let me say, in some ways, that wouldn't be very different at all, right? Hmm. Just in terms of, like, the kinds of science, the, the technology that we have, the, the landscape, evidently, that we have, and mm -hmm. flowers and trees and birds and all that sort of thing would be the same, uh, as would uh, our general health situation, all those kinds of things. Right. So, uh, but I think you're right, probably, that the, the main thing that would be different would, well, be a sense of language mm -hmm. uh, and a sense of uh, our own individuality. I would put those things probably as the primary uh, things. I'll, I'll explain a bit about mm -hmm. that. But I mean, I suppose the most obvious answer to the question was what, we wouldn't have festivals like Bard on the Beach, right? <laughs> or, <laughs> the or, uh, festival or the Stratford Festival. Or Stratford Festival or any of those kinds of Yeah, so obviously, and we wouldn't probably have quite as much interest in theater, hmm. period. 
uh, as we have, because especially in the English-speaking world, but not only in, the, in many other uh, places, in Germany and Russia and Japan, I mean, Shakespeare has, has become a sort of the, the major figure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the way, the whole way in which the theater is configured is to some extent uh, dependent on this idea of Shakespeare as the preeminent uh, dramatist. Right. Not just in English, but I mean really the preeminent dramatist in world history. Uh, so it's a, it, it, he's, in, in a way, a lot of stuff has, has kind of flown from that, has, mm -hmm. has uh, developed out of that. Um, but uh, the, I mean, I think you're right to emphasize the language that we speak. Of course, the language that we speak without Shakespeare would still be very similar, but, we might, but it probably wouldn't be as rich. Mm. I mean, for one thing, Shakespeare invented tons of words, probably six or 700 words right. he just invented. Mm -hmm. And many other words he, he used um, for maybe for the second or third time, but he somehow popularized. So a lot of, mm -hmm. of our language, especially literary language and so on, has, has been affected by that. Mm -hmm. And not only, when you think also, it's not just Shakespeare himself, but Shakespeare's influence on other writers. So that if you think, uh, say, right from the earliest period, practically, uh, from the later 17th century, uh, people like Dryden and, and then Pope and Johnson and Keats and Tennyson, mm -hmm. Joyce and Samuel Beckett, uh, all these people were sort of steeped in Shakespeare's work mm -hmm. and used uh, his work to and rewrote this their own works in, in sort of in tandem or in, in some kind of conversation frequently with Shakespearean texts. Absolutely, because so, we don't necessarily speak an iambic pentameter no, or anything don't. like that, but, <laughs> but the way in which we hear, let's say, the music of poetry and the way that yeah. we understand the words that do sound great today or that even modern writers are writing are uh, for heavily sure. yeah. influenced. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, I mean, take a guy like Tom Stoppard, who wrote the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously this play would not exist without <laughs> Hamlet. Of course. It's, a, it's, it's out of Hamlet. And, and, and the kinds of interests that Stoppard uh, indicates as a, as a writer, the, the things that he's actually interested in, some of those come from his reading of Shakespeare. One of those things in particular is an interest which he exploits in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, is an interest in the theater as a kind of uh, self-reflexive kind of a practice, you know, mm -hmm. so that, that there's this way that those guys are aware that they're in a play, and then mm -hmm. there's a play within a play in that play as there is in Hamlet and so on, right. so that you, you get all this re reflection. It's not just theater, but it's also reflection on theater, hmm. uh, and, and that kind of thing is, I think, something which is developed out of Shakespeare. But the other the other, the really big thing, I think, in the way in which we conceive of ourselves, and this is something that novelists have, have used a lot over the centuries too, I, again, sort of in a kind of conversation, a tacit conversation with Shakespeare, uh, is our sense of individuality and our sense of character. Uh, to some extent, the modern idea of what a character is, a literary character, mm -hmm. was, I'm, this is maybe taking a big step, but it was invented by Shakespeare in some ways. Mm -hmm. So you take a figure like Hamlet, the most famous of all characters, uh, and that, that sense of him as somebody that we bo both know and can never fully know, that sort of op the opacity of the character as well as the richness of the character, mm -hmm. the sense of him that, that, that gives us a sense of he has an internal life that we know something about but we can't fully fathom, all that kind of thing, uh, is, is a, a way of conceiving of individuality, of selfhood, that... that um, Shakespeare was really one of the, well, I think the preeminent figure in developing. And it's then something that, say, the 19th century novelists, not only in English, but Tolstoy or 
Dostoevsky or who, you know the French novelists or whoever uh, picked up on and developed a sense of the internal life of a character somehow made manifest through language and mm -hmm. in the case of Shakespeare and other theater practitioners through acting and gesture and all right. that kind of stuff. And so could you, I guess technically you could say that in some ways studies like sociology and people who have, and psychology and this, the development of these other disciplines that looks specifically into the human being and looks at mm -hmm. character and builds on that, a lot of that came from... Well, not just from Shakespeare, obviously, but from, <laughs> from literature. I mean, Freud said, you know, Freud, who the great psychologist said, uh, that he learned more from reading the poets than he did from reading other psychologists. You know? Well, there you uh, go. <laughs> I mean, it, was the, it was that sense of a kind of, uh, that, that, that the great writers have insights into human character that, that go beyond most of us, uh, and that somehow that, um, it, it, the, 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 the sharp-witted psychologist can kind of Hone in. Hone in on that kind of business you know, hmm. and figure it out. Uh, so in a way, uh, sociology perhaps not quite so much. I mean, obviously, people can read uh, Shakespeare and other writers of that period and get a sense of the of the times mm -hmm. and the way the social relations operate and power relations and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which certainly will have something uh, to do to speak to sociologists. But it's, I would say probably psychology uh, more than mm -hmm. sociology. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Well, um, uh, happy birthday to Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, right. Happy birthday. <laughs> and, um, and thank you so much You're for welcome. speaking to all of us about great. this. Yes, a big thank you to Professor Dawson. He's working here at UBC, and although he is retired, he is still remains a scholar, as you could tell. And with that, that's the end of the Arts Report for today. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email here at CITR. The address is arts at CITR.ca. Until next week, take care of yourself. You can head out to that Signal and Noise Festival. I'll definitely be checking it out. But until then, you take care of yourselves, and I'll meet you back here next Wednesday on the Arts Report. It's your 75-cent coffee fix in the sub. It's your source for reasonably priced, creatively named stew and vegan brownies. It's your purveyor of bicycle-delivered local produce. It's also a place where volunteers can realize their vision of responsible business and where like-minded students can explore UBC's food systems. Hark! Sprouts is currently accepting applications for next year's executive board and is encouraging ambitious, creative, and disciplined students from all faculties and year levels to apply.